previously on If the Walls Could Talk. Rogan was a central participant, if not the central participant in the whole fraud scheme. We got the judgment. I thought, what was I thinking when I thought we could win the case? Rogan just left the country. I thought, uh oh. The following contains adult language and content. Discretion is advised. Your wedding day is one of the biggest days of your life. It's the day we celebrate love, unity, and commitment. It marks two people and two families joining together as one. For Peter Rogan's son, his wedding day arrived in September 2007. As he and his new bride said, I do, the father of the groom was nowhere to be found. Instead of wearing a fancy tuxedo and delivering a toast before dinner, Peter Rogan was holed up north of the border in Vancouver. A year earlier, a federal judge ordered Peter to pay $64 million for his role in a massive Medicare fraud scheme at Edgewater Hospital. But two weeks later, Peter fired his lawyers and took off to Canada. Not even his own son's wedding day was enough for him to return. I was quite surprised. Neil Holman was one of Peter's attorneys. I do remember that Rogan missed his son's wedding. But there was someone who wasn't on the guest list who did show up. It was an FBI agent. He showed up to serve Peter's friend and lawyer, Fred Cuppy, with a citation to discover assets. This citation requires the person being served to appear in court to answer questions about their property and income. So not only do you have a wedding where the father of the groom is missing, but now you have the FBI showing up and serving his friend with a citation. It sounds like Peter missed quite an interesting wedding day. I think he was a good father to those kids, at least trying to set them up financially. He had money and trust for them. And knowing what he had done for his kids and the trust that he had set up, maybe thought he was going to get arrested too. I, I don't know. But I do remember he didn't go, and I was very, very surprised at that. That money actually plays into why the FBI showed up at the wedding. The trusts were funded with money from Peter's sale of Edgewater Hospital, as well as proceeds from his management companies that once ran it. At one point, Fred Cuppy was the trustee or legal owner of some of those trusts, so the feds wanted to talk with him. Choosing to serve him at Peter's son's wedding certainly was a curious move, but also ballsy. They might have done it to see if Peter actually showed up, or maybe it was to send a message. Whatever the reasoning, they weren't showing any mercy. With millions of dollars in unpaid judgments back in Chicago, Peter entered Canada as a visitor in 2006 and later applied to be a permanent Canadian citizen. He told immigration agents that he did not like the direction the United States was going. Since US officials hadn't charged Peter criminally, there wasn't much Canadian authorities could do. What Peter was charged with back in the States didn't make him criminally inadmissible. Back in the United States, the FBI made a trip to his old business office in Northwest Indiana. When they arrived, they found it abandoned. Left behind were some computers and over 100 empty file folders. And based on the labels of these folders, they once contained financial records, but now they sat empty. Most upsetting to the feds was an invoice they found from a document destruction service. This time, it was for destroying 47 boxes of documents, and it happened just weeks before Peter Rogan fled the country. If you add them all up, that's now 67 boxes of records that Peter destroyed. Something else Peter left behind was another civil case that was still pending when he fled to Canada. 
the hospital's former creditor, Dexia Bank, sued him and his management companies. The gist of the lawsuit was that Rogan, primarily, fraudulently induced Dexia into agreeing to issue this letter of credit to guarantee Edgewater's bond debt. Gabe Eisenberg was one of the lawyers who represented Dexia. Rogan and the companies he used to manage the hospital cheated Dexia and cheated the hospital. It was a breach of contract to commit fraud when running the hospital. So think about it like this. You go to a bank to get a mortgage on your house, but you lie to the bank about your income. Well, the bank can sue you for fraud, and that's what Dexia did with Peter Rogan. As lawyers for Dexia tried to obtain evidence during the discovery stage of the case, they ran into a number of stall tactics by Peter. He was very hotly contested, a lot of discovery battles, trying to get documents from Rogan and companies related to Rogan. But then? Rogan just stopped. They stopped defending. When Peter stopped defending himself, the court entered a default judgment. Peter was ordered to pay Dexia $126 million. When you add that judgment to what Peter already owed the government, his tab climbed above $180 million. With Peter now living in Canada and not voluntarily paying, a team of lawyers, accountants, and computer experts went in search of his money. Well, there's a combination of ways that creditors find money, particularly when it's offshore. Attorney Jay Atkinson is an asset protection expert. The first step is to take what information you have domestically as to where the money went. You start trying to trace it as far as you can, then you see where it goes. Sometimes you can trace it quite a ways, and sometimes you can trace it into foreign bank accounts and, and things like that. And when it comes to the offshore international banking system, there's actually a lot of information out there that is not procured by the most traditional means. The team following Peter's trail of money found tens of millions of his dollars stashed all across the globe. And this was somebody that obviously had some very significant problems with relation to the hospital deal that he was involved in. So he and his attorney set out to use offshore structures and some legal structures in a way just to thwart those creditors from recovering the money that they had lost. Lawyers for Dexia and the government would spend much of the 2000s hunting down Peter and his money. It's probably the longest case I've ever worked on, 18 years. <laughs> Gabe's partner, Scott Mendeloff, also worked this case. Scott was the team leader and I was working with him. Now, Scott is a former federal prosecutor who was part of the team that tried Oklahoma City bomber, Timothy McVeigh. One lawyer we talked to compared Scott to a relentless bulldog that once it sinks its teeth into your leg, won't ever let go. That sort of dogged persistence would wind up being a useful and much needed tool in the hunt for Peter Rogan's money. With nearly $180 million due to Dexia and the government. We're looking for any asset that could satisfy the judgment. Collecting those assets was a painfully slow process. Rogan had put assets in other people's names to avoid creditors like Dexia. And to add in the fact that Peter Rogan fled the country. All that made it challenging and complicated. So this is where the headache turned into a migraine for the lawyers. In order to collect on those assets, they had to convince the court that they actually belonged to Peter. One such asset was the Rogan's home in Northwest Indiana. It was in the name of Peter Rogan's wife, Judy. And when she tried to sell it, lawyers for Dexia swooped in to put a lien on the $1.6 million sale. There was also a brand new condo in downtown Chicago that Judy Rogan purchased. She paid just over a million dollars in cash. The three-bedroom, three-bath condo sat in a luxury skyscraper right off Chicago's Mag Mile. 
the building had amenities like a pool, jacuzzi, and even a steam room. In court, Dexia's lawyers had to prove that even though the condo was in Judy's name, it was paid for using her husband's money, so it actually belonged to Peter. And then there was the question about who lived there. Two of the kids lived there. Two of Peter's children testified that they lived at the condo, but they didn't pay rent. They also claimed they weren't sure who owned the condo. When Peter's son was asked who their landlord was, he said, I'm not aware that we have a landlord. They live there and they don't know who owns it. They're not paying rent, but it just seemed, it seemed unusual. Things continued to get complicated when Judy Rogan filed for bankruptcy. As we said in filings, that, you know, it was an effort to stall efforts to, to get after assets in her name. Dexia eventually got the condo and sold it. Other hotly contested assets were those trusts that Peter set up for his children. It is all too common for people when they get into trouble to start trying to put things off into the name of their spouses and kids. The reason being... If you create trust for the benefit of your kids, the kids are typically not a party to the lawsuit and it's much more difficult for the creditors to get them. Dexia's lawyer said that Peter put the money in the trusts to shield it from creditors. That money, they claimed, was actually the fruits of Peter Rogan's fraud. The children argue that they were innocent of any fraud committed and ask the court why should they suffer for the sins of their father. Think of it this way. You go out and you rob a bank and you run across the street and you dump the money into your retirement account. And then when the bank comes and says, give us our money back, you say, no, that money's exempt because it's in my retirement account and that's a statutory exemption. What the court would say there is that money was never yours. When you took the money from the bank, you held it in what is known as a constructive trust for the benefit of the bank. So the money was never yours. We're going to force the money to come back. And that's largely how the creditors were able to get at the assets in the kids' trust was through constructive trust theories. Litigation over this money dragged on for months, but the court ultimately ruled that all but $30,000 had to be turned over. There's a lot of money that they ended up losing. So I can imagine that was something they were unhappy about. One of Peter's accounts in the Bahamas held more than $30 million. But in an affidavit, Peter denied having access to it. Despite Peter claiming that he couldn't access the trust, investigators found that Peter directly or indirectly made over $8 million worth of distributions to himself and others. The offshore jurisdictions, to some degree, make a business out of helping dishonest people. Payments went to Peter's wife, as well as personal expenses, like his yacht, named Fringe Benefit. That's the yacht that Peter used to take Edgewater nurses out on for meetings. And once again, the yacht wasn't in Peter's name. It was owned by a company called BFB Inc. BFB stands for Big Effin' Boat. The feds eventually seized that big boat and sold it. I don't think there was high demand for this yacht, if my recollection is right. Maybe when Rogan had been using it initially, it was a very nice yacht, but I think by the time it was sold, it wasn't that nice. While Edgewater lawyers had to deal with all of these messes, Gabe never lost sight of who and what led them to this point. In the background here were people's lives. The genesis of it involved doctors performing procedures on patients that didn't need them. I think uh, one of the doctors, Dr. Kubria, may have killed two patients. It was pretty bad. I mean, I think he was putting catheters in people's hearts that didn't need them. That's serious stuff.
Pauline Scott grew up and now raises her own family near Edgewater Hospital. Whenever she'd have company, they'd always point across the street to these giant windows. Everybody wanted to know what those windows were, and I'm like, well, that was a pretty cool swimming pool at some point. Along with Edgewater Hospital's old solarium, another rooftop feature was an indoor pool that sat on the ninth floor. For decades, the giant pool was legendary for being the backdrop of numerous parties, bridal and baby showers, and of course... There used to be things that went on in the pool, too. That's Kathy Colombo. Hospital trysts, you know, all that kind of stuff. The giant floor-to-ceiling windows made the pool somewhat of a reality show for those watching from the neighborhood. And what people didn't realize is when the lights were on in the pool and in the solarium, like, you know, it was a window to the world, so to speak, because <laughs> we could see what was going on. The pool and the windows around it became a mural for taggers. Every time we'd have people over for a backyard barbecue or something, I'd be like, what's going on over there? You could see the graffiti at the top of the building, windows broken out. Robert Dyer had an employee who made frequent trips there to retrieve records. The hospital would flood, and there's stagnant water, there's rats all over the place. And she would tell me how unsafe it was to go in there. And she's pulling employment records because she's dedicated to helping the former employees find jobs. The building's interior flooded and became a moldy and dangerous place for anyone who needed to be inside those walls. The court-appointed custodian representing the hospital claimed that the buildings had devolved into a decrepit hulk. The people living in the nurses' residence were suddenly without a home. Laura Wasilak knew one of the last tenants in those buildings. So he lived in that building when it was completely abandoned. He said they would have to just watch the weather because they knew any minute they were just going to get kicked out. While the nurses' residence sat empty and abandoned, the man who once owned those buildings was now living north of the border. Peter Rogan rented a stunning two-bedroom, two-bath penthouse in Vancouver that cost him $5,000 a month. An online listing said that the penthouse sits atop a building that was once a printing press. The ad claims it is arguably the most desirable designated heritage building in downtown Vancouver. Home was now Vancouver for Peter. Even though he continued to travel outside Canada, he avoided the United States. Canadian authorities were in contact with the U.S. Attorney's Office about Peter's legal drama back in Chicago. During one conference call, they discussed what charges would need to happen back in the States to make Peter inadmissible to Canada. One Canadian official said, well, something like perjury and obstruction of justice. And then, a few days later, U.S. officials filed a criminal complaint. The U.S. Attorney's Office filed charges accusing Peter of perjury and trying to obstruct the government's efforts to collect the tens of millions of dollars he owed. At the center of it was Peter's trust in the Bahamas, the one flush with millions that Peter denied having access. The government accused him of lying. On Memorial Day weekend 2008, Peter and his wife were on a flight home from China when they ran into some unexpected turbulence at the airport. As the two exited the plane, they were met at the gate by Canadian Border Service officers. The officers arrested Peter and took him into custody. A man on the run for fraud charges who is also accused with putting a major U.S. hospital into bankruptcy is fighting to stay in Metro Vancouver. 
The former owner, Peter Rogan, went to Canada and has been able to remain there as a fugitive. Authorities are finally trying to have him deported. U.S. authorities say the hospital bilked hundreds of millions of dollars out of the Medicare system. Doctors performed hundreds of unnecessary medical procedures on homeless people or drug addicts purely for profit. Two patients died. Four doctors pleaded guilty to performing those procedures. One doctor was sent to prison for 12 years. U.S. authorities allege Rogan is a wealthy man with an offshore account in the Bahamas having 28 million. Rogan was charged with obstruction of justice and perjury. Now he's fighting in this immigration hearing to stay in Canada. Prior to his arrest in 2008, Peter Rogan managed to live in Vancouver for about a year and a half. The agent who arrested him said she was trying to prevent Canada from being used as a safe haven by persons who are facing criminal proceedings in another country. But Peter claimed he was being victimized by the authorities. His lawyer argued that it was a veiled attempt to extradite him, and in return, was an abusive process. Upon being arrested, Peter had the option to have a hearing to stay in Canada or return to the United States. He chose to stay in Canada and hired an immigration lawyer to fight extradition. At his bond hearing a week later, his lawyer said, He's a guy in his 60s with no criminal record, accused of committing perjury, correct? There's no evidence he's a danger to the public. Peter eventually posted bond and was released. The terms of Peter's bail required him to keep the peace and be of good behavior. He also had a check-in with a Canadian border agent on the second Thursday of every month. Authorities labeled him a flight risk and made him surrender his passport. With the headline, Millionaire Fraudster Seeks Canadian Citizenship, the story caught the attention of the Canadian media. Many wondered, how was this American able to evade the law and relocate to Canada? One Canadian official even said, I'd never seen anything like this before. It takes years to get a hearing in the Canadian system. And if someone is facing foreign charges, that slows down the process even more. Peter's hearings would drag on for seven years. Back in the United States, Peter's lawyer friend, Fred Cuppy, continued to make things difficult for government and Dexia lawyers. Fred Cuppy was a lawyer. He once taught at Indiana University and even for the Indiana Bar Association. But court documents describe him as someone with a general distrust of the U.S. court system. Fred Cuppy was Peter's left-hand man who handled many of his legal matters, but he also made sure Peter's money went wherever Peter wanted. Cuppy was involved in setting up a lot of the offshore structures and move money outside the United States. That's attorney Jay Adkison. Cuppy was instrumental in setting up this complex web of trusts and companies in a game of hide-and-seek with potential creditors. By doing this, it forced lawyers to obtain rulings in multiple, potentially hostile jurisdictions. But Cuppy also made representations to the court which turned out to be false. In one instance, Dexia's lawyers tried to get documents about one of Peter's trusts, but Peter claimed he had no access to it. So the court ordered Peter's lawyer, Neil Holman, to get involved. He ordered me to get some information about Rogan's account down in the leaves of the Bahamas. But his call didn't go so well. I got a hold of, you know, a high-level officer of this bank, and I asked him some questions, and he said to me, this is a private matter. I cannot give you any information. Goodbye. And he hung up on me. So I thought, well, that's great. Now I got to go back to the magistrate and tell him I got nothing. Investigators later learned there was a reason the bank didn't want to talk. It all stemmed from an email that Fred Cuppy sent them. 
It would be helpful if you could orally tell Neil Holman that no documents will be sent to anyone and that no information will be given out about the matter. That will allow him to disclose that he is unable to get any information about the trust. When the court ordered Neil and Peter to call the bank a second time, Fred Cuppy again interfered. I understand that Peter and his attorney may be ordered to call you to see if you have documents that he can have, but I understand that it will not be possible for you to comply. Fred Cuppy instructed these parties to withhold documents to further this facade that Peter lacked access. Just confirming so you're aware of what's coming. All of that got him in trouble. Cuppy was indicted on a number of charges, but eventually pled out to a single count of perjury, which is a felony, for making a false statement to the court about Rogan's assets. Along with Roger Eman, you can add Fred Cuppy to the list of Peter Rogan's colleagues who went to prison. Fred Cuppy was sentenced to a year and a day in federal prison and had to pay a $4,000 fine. While lawyers spent years fighting over Peter Rogan's money, the former Edgewater Hospital buildings continued to sit idle and rot. One of the many hitches holding up redevelopment was Peter Rogan. His property company held the deeds to four of the hospital buildings. The bankruptcy court ultimately ordered those deeds to be turned over. The judge said, Rogan acted in his own self-interest at every opportunity without care or thought for his fiduciary duty toward Edgewater. Rogan even went so far as to claim on the stand that as CEO, he owed no fiduciary duty toward the hospital because he was not actually an officer of the company. This time, Peter was ordered to pay more than $5 million in damages to the now bankrupt hospital. The court systems just had this thing just tied up for years and years and years. Neighbors like Robert Dyer watched the buildings crumble. There was a point where the brick facade started peeling away from the side of the building. You're wondering how safe is it to walk underneath the building. So scaffolding and a canopy went up around the building's perimeter. And this went on for 20 years. While the seemingly endless search for a developer continued. We had a huge recession and no one knew whether it was going to be torn down, redeveloped. Finding a buyer with deep enough pockets to redevelop it into something the neighborhood could agree on proved to be nearly impossible. It just was this horrific purgatory. It sat there empty for more than a decade. Journalist Monica Ryda covered the story. You've got this hospital with an incredibly tainted reputation, and you have vandals, you have crime that goes on there. There are multiple instances of people trying to scavenge for copper and wires. One urban explorer who went to photograph the hospital came face to face with those scrappers. I went at about two in the morning, and there were literally five people scrapping the place. Like they had crowbars just taking anything that they could find, like copper wiring, like just ripping the place apart. These guys were big guys. They're coming at me with a crowbar. They're like, what are you guys doing? I'm like, well, we're just waiting for the sun to come on. We're going to take pictures. Then they start laughing, like, well, just don't take pictures of us. I'm like, no, nah, don't worry. Maureen Behrens lives near the hospital. The majority of the time that we've been here has somehow become attached to this abandoned facility that has corroded over time and become aesthetically unappealing, but you know, really sort of this hazard in the neighborhood. 
Neighbors like Jeff Pavia ran out of patience. The place was in such bad shape inside, and we knew it hadn't been decommissioned. We knew that there were chemicals and slides and all kinds of other things that, you know, exist in a hospital and the labs and whatnot that probably weren't real good to have in there. Things hit their tipping point in 2014. We felt sometimes like we were on our own. The neighborhood issued a demand to the aldermen. All roads seemed to lead back to the alderman, which didn't make any sense because he's not really responsible for a healthcare institution. After 13 long years of looking for a buyer, they were fed up and wanted Edgewater Hospital torn down. Look at how many thousands of units of government we have in Illinois, and no one would take ownership or responsibility for this thing. Although the neighborhood alderman didn't answer the neighbor's demand to tear down the hospital buildings, he did manage to redevelop some of the land. He convinced Chicago's mayor and city council to rezone some of the parking lots so that single-family homes could be built. 27 homes went up and sold from $600,000. And the realtor responsible for selling all these homes was none other than the alderman's wife. Huh, I wonder how that happened. You cover Chicago politics long enough and you're not shocked when something like that happens. Barbara O'Connor profited from the sale of these homes that her husband helped to get built. I just don't think it looks fair, and I think that bothered a lot of people in this neighborhood. The lead broker, being the alderman's wife, didn't go over so well. I did look into the city of Chicago's ethics code, and... It may seem improper for the alderman's wife to profit from selling homes the alderman pushed for redevelopment, but in Chicago, it was perfectly legal. I thought maybe it was a conflict of interest, which in Chicago isn't so odd. Somehow Chicago's ethics laws don't consider an official to have an economic interest when his or her spouse is the one who gets the financial benefit. Those living in the neighborhood may not have agreed on how to redevelop the old hospital, but they were all in agreement on one thing. No one liked the idea that the alderman's wife was getting all this first access to the redevelopment. As you might expect, the alderman did not like discussing this topic. If you approached him about that, he would get very, very angry. He really did not like that issue to be approached by anyone in the neighborhood. Neighbors had asked about that early on and were told that wasn't going to be the case, and then it turned out to be the case, so whatever. Edgewater Hospital was completely locked up and void of all employees by the mid-2000s. Despite that, the hospital still saw numerous people coming and going almost daily. It got really scary. That's Pauline Scott. Lots of sketchy people coming in and out of there, buying drugs. There was a security guard there sometimes. I stopped him one day and I said, you're inside this building and you're supposed to be securing it. How is graffiti showing up on the elevator penthouses and stuff? How is that possible if you're doing your job? And his response to me was, well, I can't be everywhere. (laughs) Nice, huh? Even though there was security on site at the time, people consistently found their way inside the abandoned hospital. Along with scrappers and looters, the hospital became a hotspot for urban explorers. A search for Edgewater Hospital on YouTube turns up hours of videos of people who filmed themselves breaking in and exploring the abandoned hospital. Hundreds of photos also made their way to the internet. When I saw the the urban explorer pictures, they were sort of fascinating to see. 
Even Dr. Maisel's grandson, Jim Ginter, admits to looking. It was like morbid curiosity to see, oh, I remember that, there's the lobby and there's where the cafeteria was. So there were different things that was sort of strangely fun to identify, but also sort of sad to see, you know, and then people had spray painted and it was just like, you know, it's a closed building. That's, it's unfortunate that that's what people do, but it, it happens. We saw like autopsy bone saws. That's urban explorer Kyle Telecon who photographed the hospital. There was medical equipment everywhere. Some places in this hospital looked like people just left, just disappeared. It was like they were raptured away or something ridiculous like that. One place in particular? We walked into this room and it was just an office that looked like someone had been chased out of it in the middle of a work day. There's a desk with like an old CRT PC monitor with its keyboard attached. We saw a mini fridge in the corner and Edgewater had been closed for a while at that point. So we knew if there was something in it, it was going to be awful. And it was because just the interior was like full of mold and there was like yogurt still in package and like uh, mustard bottles and stuff like that. It was all a reminder of a once functioning hospital. Whiteboards still stood in the nurses' unit with the names of patients and their attending doctors. There's just like names, Anna, Alice, Josie, Elliot. There was even a list of who was bringing what to the unit's 2001 Christmas party. Surgical service Christmas party, share your favorite dish and dessert, bring your own drinks, non-alcoholic. They're bringing potato salad and tabbouleh and cookies and it's like just so weird seeing the human element just kind of preserved like that. Someone might want to like tag over that or erase it or whatever, but seeing something preserved like that, it's just so weird being in that place where these people wrote this and and worked. It's kind of moving almost. We put pictures of the whiteboard and that refrigerator on the episode page of IfTheWallsCouldTalkPodcast.com. The thing that I remember the most about Edgewater Hospital was the volume of medical records. I did not expect that when I went in to photograph it. Ken Fager saw those records. You know, these records should have been destroyed or transported to somewhere more secure, but in the brief amount of time that I had spent looking at the records, you know, I saw things, very intimate photos, records of very intimate surgeries that had taken place. There was documentation littered throughout all of these files, and I was shocked to see that. I wasn't expected, nor was I prepared for that. Along with leftover medical equipment and supplies, there were thousands of medical records left behind. Just rows and rows of records. I don't know if any place that I've ever been, it was so extensive as it was at Edgewater. And they dated far back, like autopsies from 1960s or something like that. Kyle Telecon went searching for the records of Edgewater's most famous patients. All right, since we know Gacy and and Clinton were born here, let's look in the records to see if they were there. And they were missing. It was like right right in the middle of, of where they would be. Before medical records went digital, there were paper copies. And thousands of these records remained in the abandoned hospital for more than a decade after it closed. In Illinois state law, you have to preserve medical records for 10 years after they are created, even if you close your hospital. They could have destroyed those records in 2011. But a 2013 story on WGN-TV's nightly newscast revealed that these medical records were never destroyed. And they let the public know, hey, these medical records with people's sensitive information are sitting in this abandoned building that babbles go into all the time, and that's 
pretty terrifying. Edgewater Hospital is now what many nearby residents call an abandoned neighborhood eyesore. It's been closed since 2001, but left behind inside the buildings are medical supplies and equipment, along with thousands of medical files. We even spotted some through a street-level window right here on the public sidewalk. Not only do these records contain former patients' sensitive medical information, but their social security numbers, birthdays, and even credit card numbers. While there are no known cases of identity theft linked to these Edgewater files, neighbors are concerned there will be. After that story aired, crews magically showed up and hauled away most of those medical records. Again, you look at how that building was left and chances are they really weren't thinking into the future with that. Breaking into abandoned buildings comes with plenty of risks. It's illegal, number one, but it's also dangerous. Two 15-year-olds learned that the hard way when they gained access to the building one winter night. Neighbors called 911 when they heard a loud bang come from the abandoned hospital. When the fire department arrived, they learned the two teenagers managed to climb on the roof and were both critically injured after a transformer exploded. I remember that vividly. You kind of like hit this landing and there was a lot of transformers and electrical stuff over there. One was shocked and the other injured by falling debris. Both were in serious to critical condition and at least one of them sued. Those were just two of the many people who made frequent trips inside a hospital that had been closed since 2001. Urban explorers made Edgewater a popular destination. I think it would tell the stories of a lot of people in distress, but who were there to heal? Some went to photograph, some went to create art, and one person we spoke with wound up getting treatment there despite it being closed. You know, I think that's something about a hospital is whether or not it works out this way, people are coming there for help. Next time on If the Walls Could Talk. The sign says private property. You know, I broke that rule. I've never been to a place abandoned so quickly. I did have an accident exploring Edgewater Hospital. Becoming part of the tangled legacy of Edgewater Hospital was really something I always aspired to do. This episode featured sound effects and voiceovers from Steve McKenzie read for The Judge, Jim Hunnenmeyer read for Fred Copy, Mary Ellen Kaczynski read for Newscaster Number 1, and Dana J. read for Newscaster Number 2. Music in this episode comes from the YouTube Audio Library. Midsummer Night's Dream by Mendelssohn, Shino Doll Beat by Nana Quabina, Cypher by Wayne Jones, Drop by Anno Domini Beats, Lucid Haze by Amulets, Newsroom News by Spence, Criminal Pulse by Lynn Music, Double Conquest by Alex Kashkin, and Suspended in a Dream by Dmitry Belichenko are all used under license through Neil Sounds. Learn more on the website if the walls could talk podcast.com this episode was written by todd gans if the walls could talk podcast is produced by buckletown productions llc copyright 2021 all rights reserved